I have a kidney stone. I thank you. See, <laughs> at least I think I do. I have never had a kidney stone. And if I am lethargic and slow today, it's because I have not eaten anything since like Thursday afternoon. Okay. And I had half a bowl of soup and it almost came back up. So I, so I don't have a lot of energy and I'm really tired. And I explained to people, I thought I ate something. I th- thought I ate a bad burrito. I know it happens to all of us, right? And, <laughs> And I thought I had food poisoning, and, I, and I'm just sitting with it a couple of days, and I start texting a couple of my friends, and I go, hey, you know, and my symptoms, and they go, you got a kidney stone. And I'm like, what? Like, I can't sleep. I sleep on, like, one side in one little spot, and then my hip goes numb, my arm goes numb, and, and then I got to get up and do this, and I can't. I just, it's horrible. You can keep crying for me. It's good. <laughs> anyway, so, so if I'm a little lethargic, and that's what you see today, that's why, okay? Just if I, if I stop in the middle while we're talking about stuff, and I start breathing heavy, that's why. If I go down on the floor, we're not that kind of church, but <laughs> we're just going to roll with it. We're going to roll with it. Don't call the ambulance. Just drag me out the door. We'll be okay. <laughs> so uh, next week is baptisms. Uh, we are, if you're interested in being baptized, there is a class after every service today. If you have questions about it, what, if you take the class, it doesn't mean you have to get baptized. If you just want to know more about what it is, uh, please feel free to do that. And then next Sunday, Labor Day weekend, after third service, 1 o'clock, baptisms. You are all invited. We want you all there. There is enough room. Maybe you may enough room in the pool. I don't know, but you guys packing that thing like sardines sometimes. But, you know, they're, they're, we, we want you all there. Uh, Element is doing tri-tip beans and bread. We're providing all that for you, which will give you a kidney stone if you don't already have one. Uh, you, if your last name is A to L, uh, you're supposed to bring some cookies or dessert of some sort to share. If your last name is M through Z, you're bringing a salad. And, and we didn't really think about this until last week, but if you bring a salad, bring a dressing to go on it. Because we were just sitting there going, I'm like, who's going to bring the dressings? Well, i got to buy dressings. So if you bring a salad, bring a dress, something you like. Nobody just wants to eat like a goat or a rabbit. You want to put something on it so you're not really tasting the lettuce. <laughs> bring something to put on it. It'd be really nice. It'd be really great. Uh, I also, if I happen to get arrested before next Sunday, this is why. I've been watering my yard like crazy to get it green enough for you guys to sit on it. So if the water police come and get me, this is why. It's for Jesus, okay? <laughs> Not the front yard, just the backyard. Yeah. If you're new to Element, I'm really sorry, okay? <laughs> there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, they look like this. Get your own little coloring thing. There's crayons on the communion tables, and so if you want to color, if, you, if I start to put you to sleep, because, again, today I don't get a lot of energy. I might be a little downer, so... Color, stay awake, it'll be great. On the inside, you get uh, some notes that go along with the message as well as some questions to go a little bit deeper. On the back, you get announcements. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone or your device, and you'll get the sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements. All that goes along with today's message will be in there as well. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want you to stand with me for reading of God's Word. This is Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. And it says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and 
have us begin to understand your call and your redemption and your salvation and where you are leading us to. I ask that we would understand that we, like Moses, have also been drawn out and that you have loved us and that we in turn would live in such a way that you were lifted up so all the world would know how good you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in our series called Coding Book All-Stars. Again, I may actually talk slower today. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, this is all about the biggest or biggest stories that are in the Bible, the ones you would typically find in a kid's Bible coloring book. Today we're going to look at a biggie, other than Jesus, we're going to look at this guy called Moses. Moses is a guy almost everybody likes, maybe because he looks like Charlton Heston, or Charlton Heston, or Christian Bale, however you want to do it, whatever. Uh, but Jews, Christians, and even Muslims all like this guy. And it's impossible to get those three groups to agree on anything. So it's kind of amazing. Uh, so here are our coloring book picks. This is Jacob and JT's, the first two. They kind of look the same. So I gave one to James, our little boy who's going to leave the nest. And I said, color this. I call this Jaundice Moses. I don't know why, but he's got raised, just little jaundice. If you look like this, Go to the doctor. Could be a kidney stone. I don't know. (laughs) Open to Exodus chapter 3. Moses is known mainly for his role in the Exodus story and this little thing called the Torah. (laughs) The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. They're very important. Uh, Jews teach that Moses wrote it. If you take college classes today, what they will do is they will walk through all these things, give you a bunch of theories about how maybe a lot of people wrote it or how it all came together. If you read the New Testament, Jesus says Moses wrote it, so we're going to go with Jesus. That's, that's who we're going with. In Jewish circles, there is an idea that Jewish history begins with the Exodus story. That's where it begins because that's where they find their core identity. They would say Genesis is earlier backstory to get to the Exodus story about how they came out of Egypt into freedom to worship God rightly and truly. Again, that gives them their identity. So many people see that central thing of the slaves crying out for freedom as part of what made the Jewish people who they were. But also this becomes then the hope of Christianity. And they again would say Genesis is backstory of that. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Genesis, is, we took a year and a half to go through it, so hopefully it's not just backstory. We, we go through Genesis because we understand that God took them to the place that they were to put them where they were so they would cry out. God inaugurates all of these things. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now, the word know there is very important. The word know there means intimate involvement. If you go back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve lay together and they had a baby, it said Adam knew his wife Eve. That's like the biblical kind of knowing. Okay, it's, that's the same word, that God knows us more than just, hey, how's it going? You having a good or a bad day? God knows us intimately. God is intimately involved in our lives. That's the kind of involvement that God has. He says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the ites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, that's Moses, to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. The key scripture for Israelite history is, I have heard the cry. God has heard the cry. Understanding who God is and how he works is to understand that God is a God who hears the cry. It starts with them in Genesis, moves them to a place where they're in slavery in Exodus, and God hears the cry. God says, I will do something about their oppression. 
Uh, this is interesting to me because a lot of parents, when you have kids, you recognize your own kids cry. We were at our, our notes night, our gospel community notes night on Tuesday night. There's all these kids playing in the backyard and candy. Like her kids are in the backyard, Peyton and Bloom, and, and you hear this noise and she goes, that was, I didn't know she said Peyton or Bloom, but she said one of her kids' names. It's like, boom, she instantly recognizes their kid and the whine or the cry they make in the, I'm like, ah, that's amazing. Any other parents do that? You recognize your kids out of a crowd by their cry? <laughs> Some of you are horrible parents. Other of you are like candy, and you really, anyway, it's, it's really kind of funny. So, but God is intimately involved. God knows the cry of his people. He knows our cry. He knows our heart. It's really amazing. And in this, God is going to use Moses to redeem and bring his people out. Now, who is Moses? Moses is just a dude. Like when we talked about Noah, Noah was just a dude. Why did God choose Moses? Well, because Moses is a knucklehead, and God has a sense of humor, so he chooses this guy, Moses. Moses has a great education, but Moses is still a knucklehead, which, which you'll see. As we talk about this, and we say Egypt and things like that, don't think Arabs. This is not about racism or something like that. This is a picture of what God is doing. And we're going to run through Moses' life, get you a few things about his life. And when Exodus begins, it's a picture of what we would call anti-kingdom. Anti-kingdom. It's opposite the kingdom of God that we're called to live in. It's the opposite of blessing. It's about how sin will stretch farther and wider than we can ever imagine. The writer of Exodus wants you to see that the Israelites are not just dealing with one person and their sin. They're at the mercy of a giant system. So we're going to jump around, open to Exodus chapter 1, so probably a page back. Exodus 1.1 starts like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king, or you could read into that, a new kingdom over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. The word afflict means to oppress. Then with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. Now, what you have to understand when you read this is that they turned these people into slaves to build storehouses so the Egyptians could keep more and more of their wealth. What they did is they used these people so they could become more wealthy. We call these banks today, by the way. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Exodus opens, you have this group of Hebrew people enslaved to a system of slavery, something that is against the way of the kingdom of God. It's not just one person on another, it's a whole system against a whole people. It is what we would call systemic evil. Systemic evil is more than one on another. It's an entire kingdom opposed to the kingdom of God. This kingdom oppresses. This kingdom dehumanizes. It makes slaves of another. In the scriptures and later in Jesus' day, when referring referring back to Egypt, it referred to a whole system that is opposed to the way of God. Egypt was a picture of what happens when sin becomes embedded in society. It's a picture of what happens that's beyond one person or one two people or one tribe or two tribes. It's when an entire organized structure doesn't value human life or the reality of the kingdom of God and simply seeks to destroy. You can probably pinpoint some organizations in our country today that do that. Now, Egypt becomes for the Jews a geographical place where people were held in slavery, but later Egypt becomes to be used as a metaphor for how people are held in bondage. And even a deeper level, a picture what every person on the planet is born 
into. We are born into this thing called sin, this nature that pulls us and takes us away from the kingdom of God, this nature that breaks relationship with God and breaks relationship with one another. When the Israelites are born, they're born into slavery, not just physically, but also spiritually. It's why in Exodus 3, God says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. The central idea in Exodus is that God always hears the cry. He hears the cry. God in Genesis puts them where they are so they would cry out. God inaugurates redemptive history. This is how the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, come to be written. In the scriptures, when people cry out, things happen. God moves. Central to understanding God is he knows and hears the cry. There are 2,103 verses in the Bible about the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. Do you think that's important to God? Yes. Is this thing even on? (laughs) Guys, I got a kidney stone. Okay, give me something here. Do you think that's important to God? Yes, it's important to God. 2,103 verses. It's important to God. So what does God do? God brings about this guy with Moses. This is how the story starts. The New Testament tells us that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He has brought us out of slavery and sin and death and has redeemed us. In Exodus, you see God actually redeeming a historic group of people. So you get this picture. The New Testament, you see the principle. The Old Testament, you get the picture. For us, we need both because they both come together. Because the Israelites, they're growing so fast in Egypt, the leaders decide that they're going to kill all the male Israelite children who are born during a certain time span. Girls are okay. You're not going to kill them because, I guess, girls are just girls. Whatever. We don't care about them. Uh, But girls can be like, I don't know. They don't kill the girls. They kill the dudes. Okay, whatever. Maybe they can become wives or concubines or whatever. But during this time, Moses is born. Now, rather than killing Moses, what his mother does is takes him down to the Nile River and puts him in a basket and sets him afloat. That is against the law. She is supposed to kill her son. She goes what is against the law to actually do what is right. Sets her son on the river, sends him down. Now, what is also amazing about this is as he goes down this river, what happens is that Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses in the river and pulls him out of the river. He t- she takes him to Moses' mother and says, Here, would you be a wet nurse to this baby I found in the water? Some people say, Wow, that was really lucky. <laughs> we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in coincidence. We don't believe in chance. We believe in the sovereignty of God. That God is a providential God that oversees all things. And so this is what happens. So what you see is Moses actually did grow up with a lot of his Hebrew heritage intact. And so as he is weaned and he goes off, then Moses' mother takes him to Pharaoh's daughter. Exodus 2 verse 10, which is where we started. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses means drawn out, like if you're scooping spaghetti or ice cream or something like that. She should have named him ice cream. That'd be cool. Jews, Muslims, and Christians all like ice cream, right? So Moses, he goes into Pharaoh's house. And there he gets training, education, skills, learning. He becomes this very great leader. And this, again, is an amazing thing. Because Israelites are an oppressed people. They are not allowed to have power. They're not allowed to be educated. They're set away from the educational institutions. They had no access to learning. And so what does God do? God does this amazing thing where he allows Moses to keep his Hebrew heritage and yet go off and learn all of these things to learn to be this deliverer that his people are going to need. They both happen. So the next picture you see of Moses is after he is all grown up, Exodus 2, verse 11. You've got a lot of time that passes. It says, one day when Moses had grown up. So you go from baby to grown up. What happened in there? I don't know. Must not be important. So whatever. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, 
teaching a Hebrew, one of his people. Now Moses, he is a prince of Egypt, but he is also an Israelite. And this is the moment where Moses is going to choose because it's impossible for him to be a prince of Egypt and an Israelite at the same time. He's got to make a decision. What is he going to do? Verse 13, or verse 12, he looked this way and that and seeing no one because when you want to do something that's a little sketchy, you just look this way and that and that's about all you have to do. You'll never get caught that way. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he kills this guy and he buries him in the sand. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses is like, no, I must not have buried that guy deep enough. It's like I tell you all the time, you hurt my wife, you will be buried deep enough, by the way. Just let you know. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He will spend the next 40 years of his life in this place called Midian. Now Moses, he is both a prince of Egypt and an Israelite, like I said. He had two peoples. And he realizes at a certain point in his life, he's got to choose. Which one am I actually going to be? This sounds a lot like us. We are a people who are supposed to be, you know, redeemed and we follow Jesus and we surrender our lives to him and we love him. What kind of people are we going to be? Are we going to be a people of God? Or are we going to be a people who live our old lives the way that they were and just keep trying to bring all these old things in? Are we actually going to change? Are we going to live differently? Are we going to commit because God has been committed to us? How are we then going to live? The moment comes for Moses and he chooses, but again, he chooses in a dumb way. Okay, like go big or go home or go big and run away. You know, that's, that, that, that's Moses. And you got to understand, an Egyptian prince was allowed to kill a commoner. It wasn't really a big deal. If your temper got out of control and you killed somebody, uh, whatever. It's probably why Moses did it. Moses is raised in a pagan culture where we know from archaeology and history that nobles could get upset with commoners and they could kill them. And they usually just get a hand slap. Oh, don't play with the citizenry. Don't do that. That's all they get. They may have to pay a fine or something like that, but that's it. Moses comes in, and he starts trying to function as an Israelite, but he's thinking like a pagan or an Egyptian. He means well, but there's this pride, there's this arrogance, and a temper. He doesn't have control of his temper. He has the heart of an Israelite, but he still has all this number of old habits of somebody who doesn't believe. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like most of us. Sounds like most of us. So when he realizes the Israelites have rejected him, he has a choice. He can go to Pharaoh. He can say, hey, hey, this is what happened. He can make up a lie. Probably wouldn't have been a big deal either way. Because, again, it's just what happened. Oops, I killed the guy. Oh, okay, no, no big deal. But what he does is something that changes the entire course of Jewish history. He stays true to his identity. He decides, I'm going to be an Israelite. And his first step, he blows it really bad. But he continues in that walk. This is one of the reasons I think why Pharaoh wants to kill him, because he doesn't come back. He says, I'm going to live like this. I'm going to live as an Israelite, and he walks that road. I mean, he, he made a commitment. He started off poorly, but now he says, I'm not going to go back. You know, he is 40 years old when this happens. It takes another 40 years before, you know, God comes back and does something. At 80 years old, it looks like all the training he went through in his life was lost for nothing. I mean, maybe you, as a believer. Okay, you're following Jesus, you love him, it's like he pulls you out of the pit that you were in, and you're like, wow, God is amazing. And the next day you just do something stupid. What you have to understand is the way chapter 2 ends is the people of Israel, they're crying out under bondage. Moses' career looks like it's at a dead end. That's why we don't stop at the end of chapter 2. That's why we keep going. But you have to understand something at this juncture in the story. You cannot screw up your life beyond God's providence and redemption. You cannot do it. 
If Pharaoh had not tried to kill all those babies, Moses would never have been able to have that unique background that he did. He wouldn't have been able to have the, the education and have the Hebrew heritage that he did. If Moses didn't blow it the way that he did, to spend 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert, he wouldn't become the mostly humble leader that he was. He needed 40 years in the desert to humble him. He is a slow learner, just like you and just like me. We are also, I mean, how many times are we saying, God, I love you, I want to follow you, I want to give everything to you, and the next thing you know, you're doing the same stupid thing again. Like, God, I am so sorry. We are slow learners. We are just like Moses, and yet there is redemption. See, we're told later on in the book of Numbers that Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. How in the world did he get that way? Until this moment, he had like the leadership skills, but not the leadership character. He didn't command respect. He needs his time in the desert, as a lot of us do when God takes us into our wilderness. In the New Testament, we read this in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is the part of the Israelite story. That's part of Moses' story. It's part of our story. Tim Keller says, you can't muck up your life if you give your life to him. What that means is when your life is in Jesus' hands, we stop being the center of our own universe. We stop saying, God, I want everything to go my way, and it has to go this way. Bill says, how do you know when you begin to live like that? Because you realize everything works for good for those who love God. It's when you stop putting yourself in the center that God, you realize, is the one who is weaving everything together. I mean, chapter 2 ends, Moses is like sitting on a rock, you know, just life is over. Exodus 3 will start, and he's 80 years old. 40 years passed, just this huge jump in time. And then God shows him how everything is going to work together for God's purpose and what he wants to do. Now, the average person today, you will start to get into your life in like your mid-20s or 30s or something like that. And you will say to yourself, I can make it if I try hard enough. I will do these things. And somewhere you begin to grow up and you realize in your life that your life is beyond your control. And so a lot of people start saying, okay, well, I need something more. And at this point, they go to try and find God because they want God you know, to help them reach all their goals that they have in their life. That I can't reach it without God, so I'll try God and I'll get God to help me reach these things. You know, Essentially, you're out to use God. I will tell you something. Moses' story tells you that's not how it works. That cannot be done. There's really no way to know God without being called. There's no way to even search for him without being called by him. Once you know him, you don't go back to your old life. To, to know him means you have a whole new set of goals. You, you have his agenda in your life. So Moses is, is almost 40 when this started, 80 when it comes to fruition. And what is amazing about Moses' call is as soon as he understands the call, God immediately sends him back out. This is Genesis or Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, if you want to just flip that chapter. This is what happens. Moses is 80 years old. He is out tending sheep. Exodus 3, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So what does God do? God does something amazing. He reaches out to Moses. He calls him and says, Whoa, over here, buddy. Moses is like, Oh, well, that's crazy. What's going on over there? God calls to Moses from within the bush. Moses, Moses. Verse uh, 5, Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then God says to Moses in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, Moses' calling and circumstances of his calling are probably going to be different from yours. I mean, hopefully God's not going to scorch your shrubs in front of your house. If he does, awesome. Okay, take a picture, send it to me. You know, tweet it. I'd, like, I'd love to see it. Okay, it, it, it'd be awesome. But you have to understand the central premise is that God calls 
us. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, the Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So y'all weren't that bright. Didn't have a lot going for you. Didn't know a lot of really cool people. Yay, sounds like us. Okay. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul assumes every person in that congregation reading those words was called or they wouldn't be a Christian. Why? Why? Because we don't seek God unless God seeks us. This is why we are told our salvation rests in him alone. We have nothing to boast about. Romans 3.11 says no one seeks for God. The scriptures will tell you that our search for God doesn't even originate in our hearts. If we are searching for the real and true and the right and the good God, the origin, the impetus, the impulse for that search, it comes from God. Everything is based in Him and the person of Him. And people will object to this today and they will say things like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Everybody's searching for God. Okay, first off, Paul wins. I'm going to go with Paul every time he's in the Bible. I'm going to go, go with that guy. The Tim Keller points out how most people seek God to avoid the true God when they, we say we're seeking God. He says most people don't avoid God by becoming atheists because, you know, atheists are always going to be a few vocal crowd in any society. He talks about the route of the way which people get away from God is they seek a controllable God. A controllable God. The reason people hate the real and the true God is because our human hearts are afraid of one thing, and that is losing control, losing our sovereignty, being able to call all the shots in our lives. The only way we can avoid the true God is to fabricate a false God that's controllable. I'll give you two, and a lot of these you will find in churches today. One God is a God that is nothing but moral standards. It is all law. You get to control this God by being a good person. Oh, I got to the gates of heaven, and I was a good person. God, you got to let me in. I was really good. The other kind of God is the counterfeit God that's a God of all love. Jesus, oh, he just, he just accepts us. He, he demands nothing from us. That, that's all there is. In other words, the God of law is a God you get to owe you by being good. I paid the rent. I did my stuff. God, you now owe me because I was good. A God that's all love is someone you owe nothing to. And neither one of those is the biblical God. The real God says, I am holy and you must forsake your sin, but you'll never be free of your sin by your own good works. So I will provide a way out of your Egypt. I will send my son to take you out of your slavery and lead you out into the promised land of hope and freedom and redemption. That's what God does. And when we look at Moses, we think, well, God chose Moses because he was so amazing. No, Moses wasn't amazing. Moses sees a burning bush. Who burnt the bush? God, ah, thank you. God burnt the bush. And it's a strange sight. He walks over, oh, what's up with this bush? This doesn't fit in my worldview. This isn't how things are supposed to work. What, what's God doing over here? You know, it, it, it's, it's like us. A lot of times people don't think God is involved at all in their lives. And yet when you become a believer and you look back at your life, you see how God was drawing you every step of the way. People say this to me a lot. They say, oh, I was in the deepest pit of my life. I couldn't see anything around me. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. And I found Jesus there. I'm like, really? You're like, you can't see dark black pit. And you're like, I found Jesus here. Don't you think it's more likely that Jesus shone a light into your situation? And all of a sudden your life was illuminated and you're like, oh, Jesus. That is what the scriptures say happened. We're lost. We're broken. We don't know where we are. We're the scoutmaster with the bump busted compass. You know, we don't know where we're going. Jesus does. Jesus is the one who loves and seeks and finds us. And what does he do? He draws us to him. Just like Moses is drawn out of the water, Jesus draws us to him. That's the thing. Just like Moses, when we trust God with our lives. This is what it looks like. Now, 
We trust God with our lives. This crazy thing happens. God immediately sends us on mission. That's what he does. I've drawn you out. I loved you. I redeemed you. Now go. I don't have any training. Doesn't matter. We are all sent. As soon as Moses believes, he gets sent back to his people. God says, Moses, go back to your people. Confront Pharaoh. It's like, what? That's the immediate way it is. Open to Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. God keeps telling Moses, I'm going to use you for this purpose. And Moses, like us, has a lot of excuses. Okay? Exodus 6, verse 28 says, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is, he probably had a speech impediment. He stuttered or, or something was going on in there. So he's like, God, I don't talk too good. I can't do what you say. Okay, that's, that's what he's saying. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Aaron's going to handle the PR. Moses, you will be like God. God does not say to Moses, you tell Pharaoh about God. He says, you will be like God. He doesn't say, here's my truth. Creatively find a way to put it in a package so Pharaoh's going to like it. Make little tracks. People love tracks. You know, hand these things out. You know, God loves you has a plan for your life. Read, you know, the 10 steps. No, it is you will be like God. That's the message. God could have shown up to Pharaoh as God. James Earl Jones voice. Hello. You know, he could have done that. Could have done anything he wanted, but he chooses to show up to Pharaoh in the form of this broken human being who had run away 40 years earlier. Why? Redemption. Look what I have done with this life. Look how I have changed this life. This is what God says. There are infinite ways for God to reveal himself, for God to communicate himself. But God chooses a human being, not as someone who carries the message, but as somebody who is the message. He is the message. Why does God choose a person? Why does he limit himself in that way? God could use an earthquake, or he could use a tidal wave, or a tornado, or a storm, or ice cream and cookies. I mean, those are like God things. They're they're amazing things. And yet God shows up in Moses, and the people begin to be led out of captivity into freedom. You have the Egyptian plagues and the Passover where God loves and passes over his people and gives gives them peace, all of which foreshadows Jesus. Open to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. This is where God pulls his people out in redemption, and this is where he takes them, and this is what he says to Moses there. Exodus 19, verse 3. It says, Israel encamped before the mountain, that's Mount Sinai. When Moses went up to God, and here you'll actually get God's personal name again. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Moses' story isn't really about Moses. It's about redemption, calling, and mission. That's what it's about. God says, when you were in Egypt, I called you, I rescued you, I redeemed you, I brought you out. But now that I brought you out, I have something for you to do. More importantly, someone for you to be. That's what I have for you. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. God has a mission and an identity for these people. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, do you know what a priest is? A priest is someone who does what's called mediate the divine. 
They mediate the divine. They put the divine on display. If you were to go back into this time, there's all these different temples to all these different gods. You would walk into that temple and to figure out who that god is, you look at the priest. How do they live? How do they act? What do they do? What do they look like? That's, you would say, well, that's what that god is like. A priest would show the divinity that their god is. Priests would represent. Okay? In Egypt, in Egypt, God pulls them out of slavery and then he gives them an identity. You were not just pulled out and brought into redemption and freedom to walk around and say, hey, we're liberated, we're liberated, we're free. God just didn't save us so you could walk around and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Let's have a Christian club, let's make a Christian website, let's make some tracks, let's, let's hand those things out, let's do these things. You're brought out to be an entire kingdom of priests, the kingdom of God. God appears to Moses and says, you will be like God. Then to a whole nation, he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will all be like me to the world. Called, saved, redeemed, sent. That's what happens. And this leads us to us, the church, which starts in Exodus chapter 19, (laughs) which is kind of amazing. God is redeeming us, calling us, changing us to be his body, to be his people, the people who will be the message. When Jesus comes, he takes this massive tradition of slaves coming out of Egypt and Sinai and purpose and mission and identity. And he says, be part of what God is doing. You will be my message. I know we got this thing by Eugene Peterson called the message, this little book, but I will tell you that we don't have this thing called the message. It's not this thing that if we articulate it right, creatively, passionately, from our hearts, people are going to go, oh, yeah, that's it. The message is Jesus and what he did in Moses, in the Israelites, and what he does in us. We become the message. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What is that appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the appeal. Why? Because there is redemption. There is hope. Your life does not always have to be the way your life was. You may say, I can't be the message. I am too screwed up. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And so am I. And so was Moses. That's the beauty of the message. These people, they're in Egypt and slavery and sin and darkness, no hope, no light. They cry. Who hears the cry? God hears the cry. Who inaugurates the cry? God inaugurates the cry. They are brought out and you have this rescue of this broken people in deliberation because of the redemptive work of Jesus. Your crap in your life is part of the message. It's part of the message. I mean, do you even understand that? So often we want to say, oh, God couldn't use me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. Yeah, God does. And God wants to use you. People say to me all the time, give me the 10 things element are about. And they think I'm being funny when I say I got one, Jesus. And they go, oh, I'm, I'm not joking. That, that's all I got. I got Jesus. Jesus pulls our butt out of slavery and sin in Egypt and oppression, and he redeems us. He brings us out to be the message. Jesus. That, that's it. Your brokenness, his goodness. Your death, his life. Jesus taking us out of Egypt to Sinai. You're Moses. You're Israel. You're redeemed. You are the message. You. You. All because of God's call. The question for us becomes, how do we live that call? Have we been living the call? What does it look like? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I, we, we talked about, you know, a fragrant, pleasing aroma to God. And I, and I said, what's your aroma before God smell like? Need some Febreze in there? You know, I mean, this is the same thing. What, what, what message are you sending of what God is like by how you live your life? And I am not talking about a Christian subculture of T-shirts and bumper stickers. Okay? I am talking about a people 
who honor Jesus in their lives, who show grace to one another, who lift up him in all things because he is good and he is holy and he is the one that we worship. That's what I mean. The great God who has sought us, called us, redeemed us, and sent us. That's what I mean. So how's it going? You know, you're like, that's too good. You know what? Even if it hasn't been too great, good news. There's no shame in it. God's like, now, this is where we walk forward from. There's always hope in the future because God is leading us into our futures. He is redeeming us. And so we take that and we're like, wow, you mean my past doesn't have to define me? No. No. What God calls us to is what defines us. We are children of God, redeemed and saved. This is why we talk about communion every single week. It's where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. His body was broken so that our sins could be taken away, so that we could be pulled out of our Egypt. You dip in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Jesus rises from the dead, and we get to become a people who live in new life, a new relationship with God and each other again. Because God is simply amazing and good. This is what we remember. The band's going to come up. Do a, a couple songs here. And when they do, you're welcome to take communion. We'd love for you to do that. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you're in a, maybe you're in a spot today where you don't understand how all of the garbage in your life could be part of the message. How Jesus could even redeem some of the things that have happened to you. They would love to talk to you about that. I mean, maybe you don't understand what it means to actually live and be the message. They'd still love to talk to you about that as well. Because our God is good. He is amazing. And he redeems us exactly where we are. And then grows us into the people he intends for us to be. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. And we give because God gave so much to us. Giving simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he has done in our lives. And there's some food and cookies in the back. We invite you to grab a couple cookies. Eat them. Get a kidney stone. You'll totally enjoy it. It's great. Um, but maybe in doing that you'll meet some other people. And you'll maybe go through the notes and ask some deeper questions. You know, what, what is my message? What is the message I am displaying? Do I display a different message if I'm in a Sunday morning church service rather than at work or rather than hanging with my friends? What message am I living? And realize in that, realize in that, that there is still hope and grace. That the message you sent yesterday does not have to be the message you send tomorrow. It can all be new. It can all be redeemed. Because God is a God who calls us out of our Egypt out of our sin and darkness, and into the gracious goodness of his light and grace. This is what Jesus does. This is who God is. The God who calls and redeems and sends. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and that you would use us in ways that, even right now, we can't even comprehend. You would help us to begin to understand the things that we have been called out of. That we would understand that there's a life that we are called to. And even when we fail to live that life in a way that honors you, you still come and offer us hope and redemption and grace that you do not intend for us to live in the shame of our past, but the hope that you call us into. That that the gospel, the good news of who you are, is not just about what what you've done, and it's not just about what you promised to come back and do. It's the present reality of what you do today in and through your people. So today, in this gospel present, take us. 
and move our hearts and our lives to places where we understand your great and good redemption of us and that we are moved to understand not just that you are the one that saved us but how you saved us that you have forgiven us and you use us with all of our scars and flaws to be your message to be your people teach us to live in the glorious goodness of that hope that you are sovereign over all things especially our own sin and darkness and that we can always be made new have us live in the newness of your redemption and your hope we thank you for saving us for calling us for redeeming us teach us to be the message we ask this in your son's good name amen